What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. On September 22, 1862, President Abraham Lincoln issued a proclamation which began like this. On the first day of January in the year of our Lord, 1,863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free. Booker T. Washington was nine when that Emancipation Proclamation was begun, when the news of that hit his plantation in southwest Virginia. It was a day that he recalled in an autobiography where he said this, Booker T. Washington, The most distinct thing I now recall in connection with the scene was that some man who seemed to be a stranger, a United States officer, I presume, made a little speech and then read a rather long paper the Emancipation Proclamation, I think. He says, after the reading, we were told that we were all free and could go when and where we pleased. My mother, who was standing by my side, leaned over and kissed her children while tears of joy ran down her cheeks. She explained to us what it all meant and that this was the day for which she had been so long praying, but fearing she would never live to see. In time, the news of the freedom swept across the nation, of course. Slaves were free. At last. Officially. In principle. But the practicality of the news, of this new state of things, the practicality of this freedom was another matter entirely. Booker T. Washington says this, the wild rejoicing on the part of the emancipated colored people lasted but for a brief period. 
For I noticed that by the time they returned to their cabins, there was a change in their feelings. The great responsibility of being free, of having charge of themselves, of having to think and plan for themselves and their children, seemed to take possession of them. It was very much like suddenly turning a youth of 10 or 12 out into the world to provide for himself. In a few hours, the great questions with which the Anglo-Saxon race had been grappling for centuries had been thrown upon these people to be solved. These were the questions of a, of a home, a living, the rearing of children, education, education, citizenship, the establishment of the sport of churches. He says, was it any wonder that within a few hours the wild rejoicing ceased and a feeling of deep gloom seemed to pervade the slave quarters. To some it seemed that now, now that they were in actual possession of it, freedom was a more serious thing than they had expected to find it. After a brief celebration, many former slaves returned to the fields to continue their former lives. Even though in principle... They were now officially free to own land and to live anywhere they pleased. In practice, very little actually changed. The legal freedom simply presented them with the opportunity to live free lives. Turning their legal status into actual experience required internal transformation. And those who found the task too daunting went back to choose the comfort and the familiarity of slavery instead. Now, now this may seem and sound a little foolish from the perspective of those who have never known slavery, but this is exactly the scenario in which many of us find ourselves. I would go so far as to say the majority of Christians choose slavery over freedom every day. Even though we have been set free in principle, to live as such doesn't come easily nor naturally. It's a process that has to be accomplished supernaturally. It is this struggle to understand and to live out this newfound freedom that prompted Paul to write Romans 6 through 8. Now, Paul has just spent five chapters laying out the basics of the gospel. And this is how Tim Keller describes this newfound freedom in six words. He says, salvation is received and not achieved. Salvation is received and not achieved. Paul has been talking about this for five chapters. It's something that we receive because Jesus gives us the opportunity in faith to take on his perfect sinless life. He gives us the righteousness we couldn't earn. So it's something we receive that we cannot earn. Salvation is received and not achieved. This is a revolutionary truth about the Christian faith that distinguishes it from all other religious systems or faith on the planet. Salvation is received and not achieved. It's hard to get your mind across, uh, um, your mind around, really. Because it's easy to go back to the slavery you knew. 
It's hard to live out in practice the newfound freedom that we actually already have. Salvation is received and not achieved. And people in Paul's day were saying the same sort of thing we do to that sort of question, like, how in the world can that be? That you receive this and you don't achieve this. Because everything in our nature, everything about how we're raised from birth says, you must, you must, you must, you must, dot, dot, dot. Get there. Achieve it. Take responsibility. Be your own man. You must is how we are raised from birth. You see, when we think about, I mean, it makes sense that this would be a struggle. When we think about how serious our sin is, we feel like there's no way that we could deserve the riches of heaven without earning it. Makes sense to us even. There's no way anyone could deserve the riches of heaven that I have in Jesus without having to go out and earn it to get it for myself, which is, in a sense, true and why Jesus must earn it for us. Our righteousness comes from God in Jesus because of his perfect and sinless life. But we constantly, constantly struggle with going back to the way that we were taught to earn our righteousness. I know a whole bunch of you on the inside are like, I know I was taught my righteousness that way. I mean, I know I wasn't supposed to be, but I know that's how I feel. We go back to the way we were taught to earn our righteousness, and we fight against the truth that someone else had to achieve it for us. And so we return to the old ways of working our way into God's graces. So we are exactly like those in Paul's day, at the beginning of this passage, who are objecting who are objecting that salvation couldn't simply be given to us. It couldn't possibly work that way. And so here at the beginning of Romans 6, Paul answers those objectors. Turn there at Romans 6, 1, if you haven't gotten there yet. We're going to do this in two parts here, 1 through 7 and 11 through 18. 1 through 7 is that principle of freedom. 11 through 18 is the practice of freedom. So let's start with the principle of freedom part in 1 through 7 here, it says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? This is Paul responding to those objectors. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound, that grace may increase? He's asking it rhetorically on behalf of those who accused him of preaching a too easy gospel. They thought that preaching grace meant that people would feel free to sin more, to like sin without limits. And they were annoyed that it wasn't favor from God that they were, you know, earning. They thought it would backfire and create more problems than it solves to say that grace is how we got this. They thought it would backfire and create more problems than it solved. Which, if you think about it, do you hear yourself in that a little bit? I know I do. I hear myself oftentimes saying things like, grace just really creates more problems than it solves. If everybody would just do what they're supposed to do, I mean, everything would work easier, right? I know all y'all are like, yeah, more responsibility is what we need. And that's true. <laughs> but be careful, not, be careful not to confuse that with perfection. We'll come back to that later on. 
We'll come back to that later on. I know I hear myself in that. Grace just creates more problems than it solves. You've got to earn your way, and you've got you to earn your status like, like I did. In fact, I was thinking about how I began to feel like I was accepted in a church body. Thinking back in my own, my own experience with this, tell me if this is anything like you. I know that when I began to feel like I was a part of the body, it was because I earned my way in to looking like they did. <laughs> Right? That's not what this is, though. Paul's saying, that's not how this works. That's why he says this. Verse 2, by no means. This is a really strong term. It's like saying, this can't even possibly exist this way. That's not how this freedom works, he says. He says, how can those, how can we who died to sin, verse 2, still live in it? How can those who are dead to sin still live in it? We're going to talk about this for a second here. I'm going to say this slowly and carefully here, and I'll repeat it. When you become a Christian, you become aware that what used to make you feel alive, that sin in you that felt like living, you become aware that that didn't actually make you alive. What you were feeling was a semblance of life that was actually death. Now, as a believer, you're aware of that dynamic. And so Paul's saying, you're aware of that now. Why would you go back to that slavery that is death? Let me say it one more time. When you became a Christian, you became aware that what used to make you feel alive, what used to make you feel alive, the sin in you that felt like living, didn't actually make you alive. What you were feeling was the semblance of life that was actually death. Now you're aware of that dynamic, so why would you go back to that slavery that is death? That's the question he's raising here at the beginning. And he begins to tell us here why identification with Christ in baptism is a reminder to us that we needn't go back. You don't have to go back because that old person is dead. Stop living like that makes you alive. That person's actually dead, and baptism reminds us of that. That's why he says this in verse 3. Keep reading there. Becoming identified with Christ in baptism is a picture of this freedom from sin. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He says, You are now identified with Christ in this new life of faith. Your old life, your old self died. Now, don't forget that. Remember your baptism, he says. Remember what happened when you became identified with Christ in baptism. We were therefore, it says, verse 4, buried with him by baptism. Our old self went down. And in a sense, figuratively, we need Christ down there with us because when we're baptized into death, over which we have no power, that's why we need Christ with us, we were baptized into death in order that just as Christ too was raised from the dead, it says, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There was a New Testament professor from uh, Johnson City who used to always say uh, that baptism is two things. It's a tomb and it's a womb. It's a tomb where you die, and it's a womb where you are reborn. 
It's a picture of what's going on here in Romans 6. And when, when we go to that tomb with Jesus and we come out with Jesus, that old life that you felt like was exciting, you now know ah, it was actually death. It felt like life, but it was actually death and I didn't even know it. Now I know. Now I know. That's why it says we were therefore buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised, we too might walk in newness of life. Notice here that in verse 4, that phrase in order that is actually connected to the end of the verse. There's stuff in between, at least in my version here, that can look a little bit confusing. But it says in order that we're buried with Christ in baptism, in order that we too might walk in newness of life. Of life, He's saying that you are identified with Christ in baptism so that you can walk in freedom from sin. Don't miss this because it's huge, friends. You are now, if you've taken on Christ in baptism, if you've accepted him by faith, you are now in actuality because of having died and been born again, you are now identified with Christ so closely for the purpose of walking in newness of life. You're now free. That's who you actually already are now, he's saying. You're free from the slavery to sin that you thought made you alive, but actually made you dead. Not only that, but baptism is a promise that you'll be raised with Christ. Look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his we know this is definitive language in verse six we know live like what you know paul is saying we know that our old self was crucified with him not just baptized but also crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing that kjv says that the body of sin might be destroyed so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died who has been set free one who has died who has been set free from Christ. The amazing truth is, friends, if you've accepted Christ, who you are is not who you were. Who you are is not who you were. Who you are is not who you were. So stop having your mind back here all the time. That's dead. Who you are is not who you were. Or did Christ not die? Paul asked the question that way in a couple other places. Do, do, do we need him to, to die again for it to work? Maybe, maybe you should get dunked a bunch of times to make sure that, like maybe it didn't take. He's saying who you are is not who you were. So stop it. Stop it. Stop the identification of self with the slavery to sin that you thought made you feel alive but was actually death. When we stick here, when we live here, when we think here, when we dwell here, you open yourself up to the the accusations of the evil one in ways that will keep you from fruit that God has for you. Living, living over here will keep you from joy God wants for you. This, Paul says, 
doesn't even exist. Otherwise, did Jesus' death not work? Is his resurrection not real? He uses the same kind of argument in other places to make that point. So it's important for us, friends, to get through our heads that who we are is not who we were. Now, as soon as we say that kind of thing, I know a whole bunch of us think, but, but I don't feel like, I don't feel like I'm free from sin. <laughs> I get it. I don't feel like I'm always walking in newness of life myself. There are struggles. It's not always rainbows. I am still struggling with sin, and I often choose it over pleasing God. And I think, did my baptism not take? I mean, I've got to tell you the, the, the truth, friends. I feel like I should be coming down the aisle every week going, here I am again. If you feel like that, congratulations. You're like every other Christian who's ever lived. You're like every other Christian who's ever lived. Being free from the power of sin isn't the same as being perfect. And a lot of times we think they're the same. They're not the same. Being free from, from the power of sin is not the same as being perfect. Again, you can't be perfect enough to gain the power of sin being nullified in your life. Only Jesus can. So it's an important distinction to remember that being free from the power of sin is not the same as being perfect. And we must continue to learn in the process who we really are now how to live out the truth of what we have. Becoming who Jesus made us to be, what he achieved for us, who he says we are. We have to get our minds around that, which is why Paul continues here in verses 11 and following. Keep reading along here. A lot of good stuff to get to here. He says this in verse 11. So because of the principle of freedom from sin in Jesus, because of the principle of sin, in, uh, sin being uh, having no power over us, verse 11 you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. Now, this is, this is key here. You've got to consider yourselves, he says. You have to mind yourself. You have to reframe your thoughts around this new reality about who God says you are. This word consider here is an interesting word, and it's an accounting word. It's an accounting word, at least at its root level, that has the idea of placing something into your account. It's an accounting word that means to calculate. It's the same word that's used a bunch in Romans 4 to talk about how Abraham's, Abraham's faith was credited, it was counted to him as righteousness. Same word used here. Romans 9, 8 says, It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted are considered as offspring. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting, not considering their sins against them. Which is to say, friends, if God doesn't count your sins against you, why do you keep doing so? Because the accusers all around us don't let the devil speak to you through other people, friends. Colossians 3, 1 to 2 says it this way. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things. This is something you do intentionally. You seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your minds, it says. This is that mindset thing. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So count yourselves, consider yourselves, reframe your mind around the truth that if God doesn't count his sins against you, if God doesn't count your sins against you, why do you? Stop counting your sins against yourself when Jesus himself doesn't do it. See, we are our own worst enemies and accusers and keeping ourselves back in this place of slavery to sin. Listen, I I don't need others' help. You don't even have to say anything to me. I learned that self-accusation a long time ago. I know a whole bunch of y'all are like that too. You keep yourself in that enslavement to sin. So Paul says here in verse 11, Consider yourselves dead to sin. Let's keep on trucking. Got a lot to go through here in verse 12 and following. We're going to move a little bit faster though. Verse 12 says, Let not sin, therefore. These are practical ways that that result from thinking differently about it. Let not sin, therefore, as a result of this truth about being identified with Christ. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't let it get a vote. Don't let it get a vote in your thinking. We do that all the time, don't we? We always let this old self get a vote in the thinking. He says, stop that. Stop it. (laughs) Do not let that get a vote in your thinking to make you obey its passions. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its its passions. It says, do not present, verse 13, don't offer your members, the parts of your body, don't offer your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin, verse 14, will have no dominion over you. It will not be Lord over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Because of grace, sin cannot be Lord over you. It doesn't have the power to in Jesus. So stop placing yourself back here with who you were. Because Jesus' death works, and this is where you are. Sin, verse 14, will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin is no longer your master. Romans 8.12 says, You don't owe a debt to sin. There is no debt to it, Paul says in Romans 8. We are free from the power of sin to rule our lives. That's the reality of of what we have in principle that we are called to live out in practice. So, starting here in verse 15, Paul reminds us not to return to the old ways. He starts by saying the same question he did in verse 1. Look at verse 15. He says, What then? Are we to sin sin because we're not under law but under grace? Duh. No, he says. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. This is, this is huge here. You are slave to whatever you obey. You become a slave when you offer yourself in obedience to someone or something. Now, now quick point of information here something to remember that is different 
than our conception of slavery in America is that Paul is talking about, uh, not just metaphorically, but he's talking about, and, and probably some readers of his writings here, are, are actual slaves in that day. And, and, and they're slaves and servants who gave themselves, he, they offered themselves to a master for a temporary amount of time to be paid because they could not pay the debt themselves. So people would offer themselves into slavery in that way. This wasn't a race-based ethnic slavery. This was not a for-life slavery. So the kind of slavery we see in Scripture that Paul refers to like this here is not that kind of slavery. This is the kind of slavery where people would offer themselves as servants for a particular amount of time to pay off a debt that they couldn't. So Paul is saying here, he's saying you're a slave to whatever you offer yourself to. You're a slave to whatever you offer your body to. He says, but the truth, the wonderful truth is verse 17. 17 and 18. But on the contrary, thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become, this is a great phrase here, by the way, obedient from the heart. You can be obedient not from the heart and look like you love God. There's a distinction between that and what Paul says here. This is from the inside out, spirit making us new, beginning to love God and act like him because you love what comes from his heart. Thanks be to God that you who are once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. I know that for me there was a time when I was super committed to the standard of teaching that didn't always come from the heart for me. (laughs) It came because I wanted people to like me. Now I'm learning to be obedient from the heart because I want to live in a way that fits with Almighty God and the good, lovely, right things that come from His heart. That's what He means by being obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And you can do that because, verse 18, you've been set free from sin. You can do that because you've been set free from sin and become slaves of righteousness. We are three words. We are three words. We are perfectly free slaves. This is who we are now. This is what a believer looks like. Perfectly free slaves. Perfectly slow. Perfectly so because Christ's perfect life works as a substitute to complete what is lacking in us. Free because the power of sin is broken by Christ. And we are now identified with him. Baptism is an example of that. And we are slaves because now, by the presence of the Spirit in us, we love to offer ourselves as instruments of the goodness of God. Now we love to do what is good and right and to offer ourselves to God. Here's the truth of the matter when we first come to follow Jesus. We realize this at some level, but not as much as you do later on. Jesus Christ is taking over your life. The old is gone. Whoever you remember about who you were is gone. And he's taking over your life and doing away with the old way, with the old you, and replacing you with him. 
What Christ wants to do you in you is, is far more radical than you could have ever conceived when you first said, I love Jesus and want to follow him. It's far more radical. C.S. Lewis says it really well in Mere Christianity. He says this, Imagine yourself as a living house, which is a Bible term, a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can sort of understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. But you knew that those jobs needed to be done. You knew that that's where he was headed. But with time, he starts knocking the house of your life around in a way that isn't exactly what you first thought it was going to be. And when that begins to happen, that can hurt. And it feels like the opposite of growth. But friend, when Christ does the work, it's true growth. When he starts going in and, and, and knocking out walls and adding another level and putting on a new room on the side, running up towers, making courtyards of that little house that you thought was just going to be a decent cottage. What he's actually doing is he's building a palace because he himself intends to come and to live in it. Friends, what Christ is doing with us through the Spirit of God, is He is making us brand new. A conception far beyond what we could have possibly imagined when we first said, I love you, Jesus, and I want to follow you. He is making us into a place where He can live forever. So forget the old. <laughs> Embrace who Jesus says you are, so that he can work in you. That's the trigger for the growth. Now here's the question we've been asking at the end of every message so far in this series. What's this got to do with baptism? Baptism is a ceremony that recognizes what Christ has done and is doing in us. Baptism is a funeral for the old you. And a declaration of your freedom. Baptism is a funeral for the old you and a declaration of your freedom. Galatians 3.27 is a cool passage that says that if you've been baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. It likens it to putting on clothing. So we're going to ask you to do today, plain and simple, if you've not been baptized and acknowledged publicly that you have this, this old self that needs to die and you haven't declared your faith and freedom in Christ, we're going to ask you to respond by, by going into that tomb and coming out of that womb. The funeral for the old you. The declaration of freedom for the new you. So we're going to ask if you want to do that. We're going to ask you to come up during our singing here in just a second. Grab a t-shirt that's your size. 
and be baptized because these t-shirts name who Christ has made you to be. Listen, I know a whole bunch of you struggle with this. I do too. I still struggle with the outside me. But I know that Jesus is remaking me from the inside out as I give myself to this new conception of who he says I am. And I do away with the enslavement to sin that I still sometimes struggle with. I need, like all of us, to name who I am in Jesus. And so instead of the outside all the time, we're putting names on t-shirts because it says who we now are. From the inside out, because of the Spirit in us, we are not what the outside says. We are alive, or we are free, or we are forgiven. This is the new us now. Baptism is the ceremony that recognizes that publicly. So that's the invitation for us as we stand and sing together. Let's pray.